0: Although although lately I told you there we spoke the other day and there's been a lot more like kernels of positivity and today was no exception I'm trying to remember what it was that that impressed me something happened some announcement was made and it was like a first Uh, oh yeah yeah today the first um the first circuit judge in America Muslim first Muslim judge like, Kareem, that's a big fucking deal. You cannot minimize the significance of something that, granted, falls under the radar of the tragedies that we're used to every day. But that, that's significant news to see that happen because it's so fucking ridiculous it's taken this long. I mean, it's 2021. Are you kidding me? You know how many brilliant Muslim scholars and professors and judges and lawyers there must be who have been around for decades, but never got the shot because 9-11 pretty much ruined any hopes of being able to not look over your shoulder and wonder how someone's looking at you or judging you or what conclusions they're reaching. It's got to be a tough week for you, man, to see what's going on in our country and around the world when it comes to. The prejudice out there and the racism and, and the bullshit the bullshit that you have to throw around and hear islamophobia once again being used as a political word when it should be simply used as a very elegant basic fundamental reminder of prejudice it's what it is. The fact that all these conservative politicians are coming out of the woodwork now and supporting what happened after yesterday's tragedy is pathetic because you know how many of them voted against it, right? It was like four or five years ago when we had that glorious opportunity for our country to treat it like what it is, you know, establish the word, establish the, the reference point
1: Yeah, to of say dealing that, with yeah. prejudice
0: against Muslims. And they voted that, against it. And now, now Doug's screaming, Doug Ford's like, "We will, we will never accept this." Thank you, Doug. Thank you for coming out being the loud, loudest hypocrite in, in you know, in all the land.
1: What do What are your thoughts are around? Because um, I, I found it interesting that uh, two days ago in London, Ontario. Um you had like all the politicians not just show up, but show up and get mic time. Um, and you know, I think it's I, I don't know how to feel about that. I don't know if it's if it's the right thing or if it is like taking like do we do people really want to hear? Do I really want to hear politicians on that day?
0: Right? Not only and do you don't, not want to hear them. Yeah. You don't want to hear them. You definitely don't want to hear them. Yeah, I,
1: do, I them. don't think
0: so. Yeah. Unless they were the types of politicians that regularly inspired you.
1: And not even that, but I mean, there's no, no, one but, thing but, to be.
0: That's an important distinction. Because I'll tell you, if we had a premier who at mm-hmm. least, you know, gave us reason to hope from time to time, to have him show up and say, I'm appalled by this and I'm expressing my outrage for it when in his case, we know he has a track record for, um, for not being there when it matters on issues like equality and fairness.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: He's a strange bird, man. I I don't know what to tell you about Dougie Ford. I mean, there are times where I really want to like him. I want to find reasons to appreciate him because I look at the man, I see him. He's in rough shape. Every, every, photo op every opportunity that he takes to go out like he did you know as you mentioned with these yeah. politicians seizing the moment uh, you're right i i didn't want to hear from any of them so principally yeah. i mean your, all the federal people right. were there no.
1: all the provincial people were there the local politicians were there and the audience was supposed to be um the local community the people in london as well as the uh Muslim community, um, local Muslim community as well, right? And so um, I don't know whether or not hearing from um, a Justin Trudeau um, or a Doug Ford was, if that was the right place, it's it's commendable that they were there. You know, it's one thing to show up and lend support. It's another thing to take mic time away from the people that actually live there,
0: man poor know, what are london, your thoughts on that? london what, what are my thoughts on a place that you know i used to fondly look back as being and with all apologies to anyone from london ontario <laughs> my my fondest recollection of london happened to be the fact that i had close friends who after graduating from high school went to the big university there right yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Western. Yeah,
1: Western, yeah.
0: Yeah, Western. Western that place where if you grew up and and had the chance of going uh, the the opportunity to go to a a university to learn something, you went to that one because it was usually the farthest one away so that your parents couldn't find a way to influence you and you were more interested in taking a bachelor of sociology than actually learning something. But that's what people did. At least you could do it back then for $2,500 a year in tuition and maybe $450 in book costs. Now, as we know, exactly. Now, as we know, it's an absolute farce. And uh, But I'm sorry. I'm not going to tell you that I ever thought of London as being a progressive or advanced place in Canada. Quite the I don't contrary. Know. See, I you know? see
1: that? I've, I've never... I went there a couple of times. And one of the times that I went there, I've got two friends that live there. I now have a cousin that lives there and works at uh, the hospital, I believe. Um, But it seemed to me talking to these two gentlemen that it was, you know, slowly becoming, it was almost like that thing about Calgary, where, you know, people like you and I who don't live in Calgary have an opinion about, you know, the types of people and the types of politics uh, that people believe in in Calgary, but then I talked to you know Mayor Nancy's, um, uh campaign um, campaign leader, and he, you know he's talking about the demographics in Calgary that made it possible for someone like an, uh, uh a Nahid Nancy to become the mayor, you know someone who was young who was progressive, and I don't know whether. I got the same feeling about London, but, you know, just recalling my conversation with my two friends a few years ago, when I was there for a weekend for, for my wife's work, uh, they were talking about it. Like, here's a, here's a town, here's a small city that can be like that. I think they had Ontario's first, if not one of first uh, ranked ballots um, you know, trying to be a little bit more progressive in terms of their elections. So, I mean, I, you know, again, I don't live there, so I don't know about it, but it was interesting to hear that, uh, one-time conservative, um, politician, um, I don't know whether he was an MPP or he was trying to be an MPP, wrote a Facebook post. He was all over CBC yesterday based upon, you know, his experiences going door to door and, uh, as he looks back now, regret at not talking back at people who said, "Finally, there's a white guy coming to my door, running for politics. You're not not these, you know, colored folks uh, anymore." And so I'll vote for you because you're white. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 fascinating.
0: Um, you know what's fascinating is a mayor who can take his progressive ideals. And find a way to get most of them accomplished without becoming too corrupt. Because most of them are. Let's not mince words here. I've interviewed some significant mayors out there. Most recently, uh, Maurizio Bevilacqua of Vaughan which you and I can agree is probably the fastest, most kick-ass place in Ontario, in terms of the mantle of urban sprawl, that's like turning into a super cosmopolitan Milton-esque experience, right? I mean, this place is hopping more than, than, than Milton did at one point, like 15, 10, 15 years ago. Remember when everybody was talking about that was the place to be? I think Vaughn now is like the place to be. And, um, you know, I love the mayor because he's a he's a great interview and and he's got a great philosophy. But um, but one of the reasons he does well for himself is because he's involved in a lot of different facets of the city. And most of them are on the up and up. Not all of them are. Let's face it. I'm not, not going to accuse the mayor of being corrupt. I'm going to simply point out the fact that it's hard to be a mayor with all the different forces that are pulling you And still come across with an air of confidence and and actually do something for your community. And that's what I like about uh, the mayor of Calgary and what I love about, you know, the mayor of London. And I wonder what they both have in common, you see, the, the fact that they are not a reflection of what the old standard mayoral archetype used to be, which was a, a vanilla white dude who usually got himself into trouble um, with some form of corruption. It's nice to see that there's some mayors out there who are standing up and relating to the common man. We don't have that in Toronto. I'm sorry. I know, Kareem, you know that you've spoken with Tory and we'll have future interviews with John Tory. But how do you relate to uh, like a, a billionaire? It's hard, you know to a really successful, um, human being that genuinely is trying to help the community, but I-, I can't relate to him. I don't think he's very endearing to me. He's not the kind of mayor that I'd want stepping up in a crisis. Um, he's more of the guy who reminds me how badly I spent my last paycheck or something like that. You know, he's got more of a, of an accountant, economist numbers guy feel than a get down in the trenches and relate to the fact that you don't kick the homeless out of their encampments during a pandemic. It's just bad mirroring, as they say, if they say that, you know, I mean, we have enough troubles in this world dealing with the pandemic, what the tragedy in, and it is such a tragedy in London shows us is that uh, we need to, uh, we need to stop messing around and wasting time and 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 finding a reason to divide ourselves i mean politically we're such a broken country just like the us we pretend and give the impression that we are all on the same you know side of battling this pandemic but the truth is i don't feel that way i feel like it's more like divide and conquer survival of the fittest a
1: and, lot of people have Sorry, go ahead, finish your stuff. No, Sorry
0: no, that's that. it, that's it. I, I, I'm stunned that amidst all of this calamity and war around us that we can't control, that we're doing such a horrible job of the things we can. Mm. Whether you want to illustrate that with Middle East politics or or you know russian ukrainian struggles or um what to do with uh, the question of nato or how you deal with what's happening in south america and the fact that brazil is being led by chief a number one troglodyte after donald trump whatever the issue is all the pandemic seems to be doing is showing us how divided we are and how we are literally shooting ourselves in the foot we are hurting ourselves unnecessarily and so when 10,000 people show up in solidarity for what happened yesterday, man, that that's positive. Call me an idealist. But when I see so many different people from so many walks of life gather around for this nine-year-old boy who has to not only recover from his near-death experience, but then accept life without his family, yeah, I mean, come on, maybe one day this country will... You know uh, actually have the backbone and, and gumption to hold its lawmakers and politicians to account so we can have real justice for victims of everything from vehicular homicide to domestic abuse we're too lax man this country is too too comfortable in defending victims rights when it comes to pursuing justice for people don't get me wrong i'm not going to throw you into like some egyptian era Hammurabi code eye for an eye philosophy which i easily could because some of these are unspeakable moments of savagery i mean he ran over and killed a family of five this 20 year old scum which he is but how do we find justice you know how do we find justice in circumstances where such Tragedies happen, and they're the result of a gradual boil of prejudice that was planted by political leaders a long time ago. Like I said, they could have nipped it in the bud had those, you know ninety one conservative co- members had the conviction, courage they should have had to be on the right side of history. But instead, they said, we're concerned about language. Well, there's no concern about the term Islamophobia anymore. You know what it is? It's what happened yesterday. It's the definition, the epitome of it, you know. Um, I look at statistics for the rise of anti-Semitism and misogyny, and I begin to start, you know, homophobia. I begin to start questioning, wow, look how this pandemic is revealing our nature. It's pretty gruesome stuff. You know, it's, it's, but, but there are encouraging moments of inspiration you have to search for. And like I said, when you see that many people showing up and political leaders, as you mentioned, all like literally in a frenzy trying to get in for their moment of PR, maybe we can say there is something positive out of that. Yeah. I don't want them to take the air out of the room, Kareem, but you got to admit seeing them so outraged and emotional, you know, Doug Ford was literally yelling Like you could hear him in the soundbite. He was like, we will never accept this in Ontario. And I also have wealthy developer friends. And, you know, obviously they left the mic on a little too long. I was the only one who heard that. No one else heard that, but it's implied because he's Doug Ford and we all know he has wealthy developer friends. You know what I'm saying? But, uh, But hearing politicians stand up, And then, you know, I was at, uh, you know, I had to drop into the bank earlier and I saw on their advertising at the bank I was at an anti-racism campaign honoring the family. And I thought to myself, wow. I mean, not only is this technological age that we're living in give us the ability to quickly see things happen as they unfold, but the response to it, Kareem. Like, think about it. We're seeing solidarity against anti-racism in the wake of an Islamophobic hate crime that happened 24 hours ago, and we're seeing corporate and governmental and multinational responses to it. What is that telling us? Maybe there is inherently a pursuit of utopia and a desire to see the wrongs finally righted. It's just sad that we have to go through these types of colossal tragedies and and reminders. And and you know how it works, right? You know the human condition. If it had happened in a faraway place where 5,000 Muslims had perished, there would have been an outpouring of grief. But the fact that people could relate to just five single Muslims who were in a family and they could immediately relate to that, I think that's what's hitting Canadians home more than anything, is they're stopping and really thinking about the way... We perceive the religion, we being the, the people who aren't Muslim, you know what I mean? The people who who have to take the time to learn about the history of the religion and the people to better appreciate why we're all part of the same multicultural foundation here, presumably. And the fact that this had to happen is unfortunate, but if we can walk, move forward and see people learn from this and see you know banks jump on board and start saying how much they support uh, you know, understanding differences, It was never a problem when I was a kid, you know, you you and I both grew up in the same public high school system, right? And I remember having three different Muslim friends, a Sunni, a Shi'i and uh, an Ismaili. And the way that they went about celebrating and honoring Allah was so different. It intrigued me. It didn't make me think this is wrong or they're out of their minds. It's not the norm. I know what the norm is. Listen, I was a secular Judea. I had a secular Judaic upbringing. So I I, I came from a conservative family, but I very much appreciated the, the differences out there. And I was always fascinated by the religion. And so that's why after 9-11, it was such a bloody shame that the lasting stain that was left from that event was how it would horribly affect all the progressive, moderate, Uh, Muslim families in North America. And there's a lot of them. And to think that one was out and about just enjoying a nice summer's walk, coming out of a pandemic, trying to make the best of it, and this happens to them? Man, oh man, God works in mysterious ways. There's
1: a lot to unpack there, Ari, uh, what you just said. I want to ask you this. Um, You know, you mentioned uh, not too long ago there was a vote in the house of commons um, to officially call out Islamophobia. Um, And there were a number of conservatives, mostly conservatives um, who voted against that motion. Uh, Do you think whether it was that or things like the uh, hijab ban in uh, in Quebec for government employees like how important are those in um, fostering this hate like is could and and the follow up question to that is are we looking to the government are we looking in the wrong places the wrong place has been the government to fix
0: this. You'd asked me what I thought uh, in lieu of that motion and how a substantial number of conservative MPs uh, voted against it, especially when it came to the... Look, culturally speaking, you and I both know that go- for government to interfere and tell uh, uh, an immigrant in particular how to live their lives or what the parameters are that requires them to respect the country that they've arrived to first is not unreasonable it's not at all unreasonable and i think that's why initially my my position on that on the nikab and 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 any kind of ceremonial uh attire was to really look at whether or not it would somehow hinder the quality of life that the immigrant has in now what is their home country and we know that it, it when it comes to cultural traditions, it's it's very very challenging to expect government to go in and simply legislate that to say you know what you can't wear that you can't wear this you can't um, perform perform those customs because we know that we have our, our charter of rights and freedoms and we live with this uh, Canadian notion of everyone can pursue their freedom of religion and but but as long as they respect where they live. And so I think it was the conservative position that somehow that was being disrespected and because they were not willing to create the moral support of recognizing what Islamophobia means, because look, what does it mean? It's a fear of Islam. It's people who look at the religion and those who practice the religion as being fair game for all the racist and stereotypical tropes that we we both find distasteful and the fact that they didn't back it the fact that they didn't support it and are now turning around and using it for political gain is is pathetic it really is i i had a great privilege to grow up around around a multicultural environment a very sheltered life that way I can only imagine what it must be like for those parts of the world where Muslim children have to not only deal with the consequences of where they happen to be born in, but what the political game is at that time, right? Because let's face it, you know, whether you end up, uh, you know, being born in Egypt or Lebanon or Syria or Iraq or Iran, I mean, you're ultimately subjected to a reality that from a Western perspective, you can't relate to unless you're actually living there and having a chance to do that so when you come here to canada you have to temper the expectations of what you can do with what's what's healthy for your country and and i think that muslims in this country are very open-minded to talking about what that is but somehow it got turned into a polarized issue and it and how ironic because now we all wear masks so first we were all outraged that, that there are people who are wearing masks in the islamic culture meanwhile now we're all wearing it and I gotta tell you, it's fashionable stuff because you can really do all sorts of clever things with your mask. You know, um, my favorite is the one guy who has a mask that looks like his regular face, and then he gets, you know, accused for not being able to wear a mask, and he pulls it down and shows it. And anyways, you have to find levity in some of this because, as I said in answering your question, uh, there's a lot of unfair realities we have to contend with. And uh, Islamophobia is something that should not be debated. It's something that should be treated in the sense that a country should confront the reality of what's going on and make its citizens stand against it because it's it's degenerative. You know, Islamophobia just, just creates division and it creates really bad political messages for people who are on the right that don't want to take the time to educate themselves. I don't have time for that. I'm sure neither do you.
1: So do we should we be looking at the government for signals on and and do those signals make a difference? So so really the 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 question is would this twenty year old uh, have done you know would he have done what he did if there was a vote and it passed unanimously if Quebec didn't have a ban on
0: face coverings that's that's such an impossible question in some respects right because i'd like to tell you that it would be less likely but considering what the pandemic has done in terms of disenfranchising people especially young people it's like an added element of of existential despair where people are growing up and they're feeling hopeless, and they're more likely to, to go over to circles of, of influence that creates prejudice and racism. And I suspect that this particular, uh, and, and even trying to, to put myself in, in the situation to understand how a person starts despairing that badly, for whatever his reasons were, by knowing that this was something that was targeting Muslims in particular for me, when I heard it, I thought to myself, you know, this is now a procession of what seems like a month and a half of really bad news involving divisions between uh, the Christians, you know, the Judeo-Christian and Islamic world. And uh, even recently in the news, there was that story about that young uh, Muslim boy who was shot while trying to, uh, to be a good Samaritan. And then the paramedics failed to give him the medical support he needed and he ended up dying as a result of it. And I started thinking to myself, you know, what are, what are Canadians preconceived notions about Muslims? And maybe I really am in a serious minority of people who have, have never even arched a brow or, or batted an eye over, uh, the fact that, I may be friends with someone or have experiences with people uh, from the Muslim world. Uh, to me, the religion is almost like meeting, you know, whether I meet a, a Jewish person from Russia or a Jewish, a Jewish person from Italy is the same thing with meeting a Muslim person from Egypt and one who might be from Lebanon. It's like, cool. We're from different places. And then we think to ourselves in Canada, just how many different people come here. Um, and they just want to raise their families and just live, you know, a, a prosperous, peaceful life. And you start asking yourself, okay, then why do we still have so many ugly reminders? I mean, you and I know why. Nine Eleven was was responsible for a lot of that. But uh, but this recent Arab-Israeli, they called it uh, they called it the Palestinian-Israeli uh, Palestinian Israeli-Palestinian crisis. I think was the official name. I, I, you know, th- that frustrates me to no end because there have been so many different like wars and armed conflicts in the last 25, 30 years that have involved, um, you know, the PLO and then, and then Hamas took over and, and the Israelis with their, you know, Israeli defense forces with their technology and everything that happens. And I see the way things shape the world and the way we perceive it. And it's, it's, it's really regrettable. You know how, how divided and polarized that perception is, and I don't trust politicians to go in and provide that leadership because I think many of them just refuse to relate or understand what the the cause of that division is and what steps you need to take to to be real leaders for your country and stand up and and not accept this. You know, you you heard how emotional uh, Jungmeet uh, was on the radio. I mean, the NDP leader sounded like he was about to... He sounded like that state of mind where you're both angry and saddened at the same time and you're just disgusted by it. That's it. He was disgusted because he's like, wow, that, that that's crazy that this is happening and that we're seeing this happen all around the world. Very, very sad. What, what are your... You
1: know, so a couple of things I want to ask you. You brought up the, um, the conflict... As, as it's been called uh, between uh, Israel and Palestine, um, there there seemed to be a lot of backlash against the Jewish community, um, and I can only talk about what happens here and what I hear happens here. You know, a lot of people that I follow on Twitter and Facebook um, that that are Jewish were posting about. Um, you know various attacks, and you know kids going to school, to their Jewish school, and police being there to make sure that everybody was safe. And you know kids asking their parents, "Why are the why are the cops here?" And such. What could you? Um, and I'm asking you not only because you're Jewish, but because you follow uh, what goes on, uh, or, or, you know, locally, around the country, and around the world more so than I do. Was was this a response? Um, to that conflict that was happening overseas?
0: Your question is whether you think the event that we just experienced here was no, somehow. So,
1: yeah, no. So, this is sort of, you know, I, I think generally, you know, we're, we're talking about um, how, you know, people, the, the sort of visible minority, whether that visible minority are indigenous people or black or jewish or muslim um or um lgbtq plus um, you know we all sort of everyone you know the silent minority or visible minority sorry um from time to time experience backlash and violence and so on discrimination and in in on and on and so after this latest, I'll just call it a flare up, for lack of a better term, um, in uh, various communities in the West Bank, between Israel forces and, and the local community, there seemed to have been um, a backlash against the Jewish community, um, and locally here, here, in, here in Ontario and Canada and so I'm curious whether there whether it was a backlash because of what was going on in the Middle East. Uh,
0: you know, to me, the fact that we fused this perception of what a Jewish person in the West might think of what's happening versus one who's a native Israeli, if you will. Look, he, he, uh, I have the dubious distinction of being what's known as a non-Hebrew-speaking Sabra, because I was born in Tel Aviv. I began my life—I began my life in this world in Israel—and the only reason I didn't end up uh, staying and serving in the military and maybe even still living there was because uh, I, my family moved away when I was very, very little, like barely, uh, barely a year old. So I never had a chance to absorb the culture, but I was always fascinated by the country, by what what was happening. You know, I like to do that little alternate timeline history where you ask yourself, what would have happened, right? I'm sure you do that as well from time to time. What would have happened if your family had not come to Toronto? In my case, um, as someone who was born in that country and studying their history, it was fascinating to me um, the direction in which the country was heading But the truth is the country itself has really gone off the rails. It's, it's reflected in literally, as we speak today, the understanding that they're, um, autocratic prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has now become a a, a universally loathed figure by a lot of people out there who value free thinking intelligence. And seeing him finally, after 12 years, be replaced by this harrowing, surreal coalition of politicians from all the way to the far left, across to the far right, is a testament to how dysfunctional Israel as a country has become. What happened this time with this latest, as they call it, a crisis, or as you called it, a flare, I got to tell you, this is this is more than a flare-up. This, this latest round of confrontation, to me, uh, has the potential to be the powder keg that lights a whole new reality between these two sides, because... Having lived through seeing so many efforts, and there have been so many efforts, and this is where, uh, as both someone who was born in the country, someone who has a Jewish background, and someone who also uh, has studied history and geography for so many years, for me, coming to the conclusion of what I'm seeing as being one where the way things unfolded, should we be surprised that there was negative... Uh, negative attention given to Jews in particular. No, we shouldn't be. The truth is this was as one-sided an armed conflict as you'll find in human history. And there have been so many hundreds of thousands of armed conflicts in the modern sense that you and I could probably spend an entire show chronically. We can start with India and Pakistan. That alone could cover two hours of a, of a of a podcast in understanding the origins of how countries or two entities deal with one another. What makes this unique is that this is the same old record like the vinyl behind you, except this time, I'm not appreciating the wonderful analog sound of learning because I feel like we're repeating ourselves here. The only good thing that could have possibly come out of this conflict is that there was a sense of hopeful direction. And maybe the fact that the Israeli government has changed hands It's supposed to theoretically improve it the problem is it's an ultra-nationalist at the helm who's pro-settler and and at some point these traditional arguments look you need to know the history of israel in order to understand its context with the palestinians you also need to understand your history of palestine in in its incarnation and how we've come to this point in the struggle um this is like a really bad, you know what this is? This is like if this were seasons on Netflix of a, of a docudrama struggle between two, two forces that were scripted. You'd realize that now we're at a stage where there's nothing new being offered. This is now just sad pathetic despair and misery that's ending up with children being martyred. And Kareem, if there's one thing in this world that we understand has immediate consequences for the future, it's laying the seeds of martyrdom caused by unnecessary violent death. And that's exactly what happened. Um, when one side provokes another, and then that side that's provoked retaliates to a much larger opponent. In terms of military capabilities you're going to see something very gruesome and that's what we witnessed for that week and a half we witnessed a a really bloody fight between a, a legitimate state that's recognized in the world that should know better because of its progressive nature and what it's trying to achieve as peacemakers in the region to a force that deserves far better leadership than it's received that keeps putting it in this perilous state um But it does not excuse the fact that there were such disproportionate numbers of death and that as a result of calling it out, if I were to do so publicly, I would be called an anti-Zionist or someone who is not uh, behind the state of Israel. I love the country. I love the idea of it, but it's a shell of its former self. It's very much like the United States that way. I could wax poetic with you about the glory days of the fifties and what it meant to work hard and get a picket fence home with a car and how every citizen deserved that. Now it's just all Blarney. That's all bullshit. We all know that dream no longer exists. The same way that the naive folks out there who keep justifying the notion that Israel's under attack, Israel's not under attack. Israel has found itself with a problem that it doesn't know how to deal with. And that is they have treated their neighbors as second class citizens for far too long. You know, it was one thing when it was 700,000 Palestinian refugees trying to find a home after 1948. It's entirely another when It's almost 6 million people who are being treated like they have no hope. I mean, the irony is that 20% of the Israeli population are consistent of the same ethnic background, Arabs, who are living in society. And an Arab woman can vote in Israel. An Arab woman can't do that in an average Muslim country. they have they being arabs in israel have an opportunity even though they're still regarded as second class citizens the way say other countries fail to respect their minorities especially across europe and when i look at that society i say to myself there is the hope we know historically that that intelligent and and faithful leaders can come together and find peace but they're just not around anymore you know when you have hamas representing the Palestinians' interests and you have Bibi Netanyahu, a hard right authoritarian, a horribly correct man representing the other, are you really surprised that we keep having this dance where every two to three years we get an uprising that, by the way, Kareem is usually provoked. It's usually provoked. Think about all the incursions they've had. Think about what set them off. Think about how many times somebody was kidnapped, say an Israeli teenager, or, you know, it could have been related to the Temple Mount, something in Jerusalem itself, or it involved one side's leader being assassinated. Like, it was hard enough when the brilliant Anwar Sadat was killed by his own military, but when Yitzhak Rabin the true son of the soil a european jew who came and tried to make a better place for all those dispossessed after the holocaust for him to meet his end at the hands of his own countrymen that was when i remembered back in the 90s thinking to myself i don't know if there will ever be middle east peace in my time now that i'm older grayer and thicker i can tell you i'm not feeling particularly encouraged after witnessing that shameful display that uh, should not surprise people painted israel in such a negative light the truth is they don't have a lot to be proud of from that experience that was a, a a mistake in so many ways um philosophically existentially it was not nothing good can come from that, except for the hopes that because they now have new leadership, maybe they can get together and say, "Let's start thinking about the children, because mm-hmm. all we're doing is killing them."
1: Are there are there leaders um, and are there communities that you know of in Israel that look at what their government is doing and how you know society has treated the Palestinians that? say, hey, guys, you know, time out, stop. We need to stop treating these people this way. We need to start treating people as as the way that we would treat our own children. Similar to how Canadians, settlers here, um, recently have been crying out against our government, saying, hey, we've been treating the Indigenous people in Canada far too long um, with... We've just been treating them horribly. We need to start being better. We need to start ensuring that there's clean water, that there's health care and so on. Like, is are there communities in Israel that are like that?
0: There are progressives and centrists and pragmatists and empiricists in, across Israel that comprise of millions of uh, of citizens who understand the possibilities that exist, it's right before them. It starts with the fact that twenty percent of their population are Arabs. So the fact that the country successfully integrated one in you know in every five citizen with the capacity to be a law-abiding, tax-paying uh, member of society, it's it's what we want for indigenous here. The problem is in the way that these communities are being represented because there are plenty of organizations that wants to see that kind of gradual enlightenment that comes with with uh, good social planning and, and urban growth where you care about your citizens and their families and you want to make sure that, especially if they're not getting the opportunity, that there's some kind of apparatus that elevates their hopes so they don't feel like they're just a second class burden nobody wants to feel that way um on the home front here we f- we failed and we know we failed because now we've reached a stage where we're unearthing mass graves and we realize wow we literally were taking these problems and putting them under the rug we pretended they didn't exist we we turned away and said problem solved that that's the thing about the saul kareem is that this this is a challenge for middle east diplomacy where we basically for four years watched the systemic dismantling of any hopes of cooperative reality or cooperative diplomacy. Uh, Donald Trump enabled Benjamin Netanyahu to work with four different states in an effort to normalize relations. But along the way, he moved the capital to Jerusalem. So right away, there's a major provocation, right? I mean, the holiest city on the planet. It's the monotheist's true arc of enlightenment. And whether you're, you know, Muslim or Christian or Jewish, that's where you go, whether you're going for your bar mitzvah, whether you're going for your baptism, or whether you're going for, you know, that opportunity to, to visit the uh, the Temple Mount. But, but provoking traditional turbulent forces around you, and then being surprised when they turn up against you and there's and there's an uprising i mean the the intifada taught us what it means when you subjugate people for too long and it is a form of subjugation when people live in territories that are small spaces they cannot go either on land sea or air outside of them i mean what are we talking about here you know sometimes i say to myself that that this is such a sad legacy for progressive israelis who understand the sad sick disgusting irony of what exists there right because it's the last thing that a people who come from a background of systemic oppression want to do to others you know i i don't think the israeli government has a mandate to do that but in their efforts to control a situation that has now become very difficult to control which is like i said it's not 700,000 palestinians anymore it's over six million people who feel they have a right to self-determination because their previous leaders through the oslo accords camp david made legit progress in that regard. This is why I was so broken about the death of Rabin because to me it represented the last real dove that could have done it. Although my name my namesake tried, you know, Ariel Sharon actually went out and did his best to try and realize why being um, being someone who was privy to a massacre, someone who who learned why at some point in history, you go from being a hawk and you realize through your grandchildren's eyes, maybe I should be more of a dove. I, I don't see that, that balanced point anymore. I just see really extreme parties because one of the reasons Israeli society is so fragmented is because there's a, there's a reckoning. They're looking into their past the way Canadians now are going to look into history. You know, I heard a term today that, that's starting to really irritate me, which is um, people who are turning their backs. It's like critical race theory denial or critical race theory, uh, anti-critical race theory. There seems to be this real pushback now as we try to expose the realities of history based on facts to help fit the political agenda. And that's really dangerous, you know, that's happening in places like Florida, where they're stepping in and saying, we don't want to take a second look at history from a Western perspective, because we know most of it was bullshit. It was, con- you know, it was concocted propaganda by countries that weren't willing to face their history, whether it was African Americans in the US, or whether it's looking at how the state of Palestine in its current incarnation exists because it didn't just happen yesterday. This is the result of 60 years of evolution to get to this point. And yet we're doing the same things, which is just killing each other and watching children die. And you know, you're a father. So I don't need to tell you what would happen to your life and what it means to you if you lost your kids like that. For a lot of people, it would be simply the end you got to love the tone I'm setting with this. We went from talking about baseball years ago and laughing to realizing that the world is not all about popcorn and Cracker Jacks and Carlos Delgado.
1: No, it's not. <laughs> um, not, not to change subjects totally here, but, you know, within the same thread. Um, you know, so earlier this week, Doug Ford goes to London, Ontario and condemns Islamophobia. Today, the Ford government blocked a motion calling on the legislature to unanimously condemn Islamophobia. You know, so so this is not something that happened just in Ottawa. This happened like today.
0: In Ontario. It's a real, isn't it? I mean he, he you thought he had enough on his plate with the notwithstanding clause and limiting how much money unions can spend to help support political opponents who will be campaigning on a platform of helping us during tough economic times. He is something else, I'll tell you. Doug Ford is doing everything he can to lose the next election, but I wouldn't be shocked if he still finds a way to to maintain this this absurd perch he's on. Um I shouldn't really say that because now I'm seeing more and more a universal condemnation of just about everything he says and does. Like even yeah, my cons- so even my traditional conservative friends are like, "What is he doing? Yes, what, what's but, the game but plan here?"
1: Unfortunately, we have short memories, and this next provincial election is not until next year. And so, a year in politics is a lifetime. It is a lifetime.
0: Not just a year in politics, but a year in politics as you get better traction from the pandemic and your unemployment numbers start to fall and your GDP goes up and you can do that classic look, I was the engine behind all this, even though I took eight months to get started. Even though yep. I made every excuse in the book and had no clue what I was doing, that—that's the thing about Doug. He lives a semi-charmed kind of life. Um, think about it, you know, from from drug dealing in high school to riding his, you know, brother's coattails and getting a chance to become the premier when there were so many more qualified, better choices than him. Um, but the populace did it. And this is what populism buys you. It buys you a laughing stock of a province. I've spoken with my friends and associates outside this province. They'll ask me the same bloody question each time. What the heck is going on? Like, seriously, what the hell's going on in your province? What are you guys doing there? And I'm like, mm, beer? Remember Beer? That's about the only thing I can tell them is, you know, once upon a time we talked about beer. Now it's uh it's really pitiful uh and i heard steven del duca today on the radio i've been hearing andrea horvath stepping up her efforts they really need to understand that we as ontarians the last thing we need to hear are them pointing out the stupid sad pathetic shit he's doing start talking about what you're going to do moving forward so at least if you have children or you have aging parents and grandparents, you can feel yeah. good that they're in safe hands. Am I right? Do you agree with that? Rather than than point out the things that are before us, which is we're in howdy doody land, and yeah. this chocolate has gotta go.
1: I I agree with you, and as much as I as as as, as you know, we want to hope, right? You know, like Obama says, you know, hope and change. Um. You know, as much as I hope that things are going to get better globally, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it is in the States, whether it is in Canada, Ontario, um, people generally um, have short memories and are rightly or otherwise selfish you know, you just, there, there's conversations that are happening now about, have people forgotten about Black Lives Matter? Are, are there different things that are grabbing our attention? Are we not fighting for equality anymore? Um, are we, have we been so beaten down as a society over the past year and a half, two years, that we're saying, enough of me caring about others, I need to figure out how I'm going to take advantage of what's ha- What's going to happen in the economy when the summer's out, when things, quote-unquote, open up, how do I get mine back, right? So, you know, with, with all of that said, Ari, um, I'm predicting, and not that I want him, I'm predicting that Doug Ford comes back. Why? Because, like you said, people are going to forget, and they're going to say, well, things are actually pretty good now
0: they're going to look um, they're going to look at the traditional indicators in front of them. Yeah. The media will unwittingly play into the hands of the political party because they'll have no choice but to report all the rebounding factors which we know are inevitable. It's um it's the same way that Trump t- tried to take credit for all of Obama's Uh, policies, um, not the policies themselves, but the economic indicators that showed that he did very well with job growth. Um, He did very well with keeping people insured. And healthy as best as he could, man. My opinion of him only increases and improves every day because I look back and I compare him with what we have in front of us today, and I, I look at Doug Ford and I say to myself, "You can easily get yourself reelected again if you just spend less time, you know, crying and 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 weeping and making excuses and pivoting and focusing more on telling the." People who live in this province, what's your plan of attack? What are you going to do next? Um, He was so unprepared for this job. It was so obvious to anyone who knew him and understood politics in Ontario. This dude was not ready for action. And I remember speaking to someone, uh, a friend of mine, and I told him specifically, I said, you know, I hope we don't have like some kind of apocalyptic event because I wouldn't trust this guy to lead us in times of strife. I don't think he'd know what to do. And bam, what do we get? we get a global pandemic, which requires these civic leaders, these these municipal, provincial, and of course, federal leaders in the world to stand up and be straight and honest and supportive with their citizens. And he didn't do any of those things. He kept fudging his details and obscuring the facts. And at one point, He didn't even believe in science. Do you remember that era in the beginning of the first and it was between the first and second wave where he started arguing until I see scientific proof, I have no reason to shut down these businesses. You know, what a man of the people he is. You know, and, and 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 the final analysis, it was just a procession of really bad decisions from really horrible advisors with really bad technocratic Western university grads in Christine Elliott and Stephen Lecce, Tweedledee and Tweedledum leading the charge there, out of out of their element, out of their league. You think Christine Elliott knows about the healthcare system? in this country. You think Steven Lecce knows a thing about academia and scholastic pursuits in this country? No. What they do know is how to be really good at marketing and public relations. That's why running for for a Senate seat or trying to be a politician in this country is uh, what a lot of people I know consider because they realize once you're in the club and you get voted in or elected or appointed, you can pretty much do anything you want. You know, we had senators who until recently and after years of struggling to remove them, were just really bad people. Um, and one of them even tried to support residential schools and, 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 show us all the positives that came from having the Catholic church manipulate and exploit indigenous children. We are a very, very confusing, ridiculous country. And I'm glad you and I have the freedom to like podcast in it and say, you know, speak our minds and interview interesting people. But there must be times where you throw up your hands and you just want to reach for your Steely Dan vinyl album there, or maybe, I don't know, close to the edge. Yes. You know, something like that, something old school, maybe Zeppelin. I don't know, what's in there. Maybe you're a Boney M. guy, but whatever you decide to listen to, I at have some both point, Boney
1: you know, M. And Led Zeppelin. So. <laughs> you see,
0: Earth, Wind, and Fire as well. Those, those were the good old days. You know, it was in the '70s, by the way, going back to our previous subject that that you know, grappling with middle Middle East possibilities, the sky was the limit because once once Egypt and Israel normalized relations and had peace, it almost seemed like it was inevitable that things would get better. But when does it not get better? When you have politicians who use propaganda and authoritarianism and manipulate people. You know, I don't care whether you're a Doug Ford. I don't care whether you're Donald Trump. I don't care whether you're a Jair Bolsonaro, uh, Erdogan, all of these all of these troglodytes are essentially people who are scared to lose power or are scared to lose the opportunity to really monetize their efforts. And and in this province, we've had some prime, you know, premiers who've, really not only screwed the pooch, but, you know, took a nice, handsome gift out of the coffers. I think Doug's going to set the record for that. I think Doug's going to take more than Mike Harris, Bob Ray, and uh, Dalton McGinty did combined. I shouldn't put Ray in there. I like Ray. He's an ambassador to the UN right now. That to me is nobility as a politician. Okay say what you will about him as a political premier here and how badly he he ended up failing because he failed horribly at least he's trying to help this country you know dalton McGuinty's disappeared to parts unknown probably the same island that homolka lives on and uh, mike harris as far as i'm concerned is the chief board of director for a for-profit you know long-term retirement home in this country, Chartwell, you know what he does? He he writes letters once a year telling his board of directors we're doing well, and then he takes a hefty, you know, big paycheck for whatever that is, whatever his dividends are. What I'm saying is the political leaders that that I admire are the ones who have made a difference in the lives of people as being inspirational forces. Nenshi in that regard. In Calgary, bravo. Bravo that you have in your life, someone that can really inspire you, not just culturally, but as a human being. And that's why it's so important that this next wave of especially municipal community oriented leaders are are reflecting that diversity. I like that challenge. Maybe we'll all learn a little bit of something, you know, it's, it's, in a Tolkien manner, all the Lord of the Ring races coming together, figuring out how to deal with, you know, Condor. It
1: sounds like you have hope. <sighs>
0: I actually genuinely do, but I'll be called naive for it because a lot of it is is predicated on the notion that we learn from our mistakes. But how do we do that when we have such a short attention span now? Right? I mean, that that's a huge problem. We not only have shortened attention spans, but many of us aren't taking the time to learn something properly. We're not taking the time to read a book, we're not taking the time to play an instrument, we're not taking the time to be creatively soulful, so our brain works in a way where we don't get into these holding patterns of consciousness. I think that's the biggest challenge with with the tension in the world right now is people are finally waking up, like, look what's happening in Brazil after the way their country was treated by their horrific troglodyte of a leader. Finally, they're marching against them. Finally, they're saying, you know what? You've killed enough of us. Um, that to me is a source of inspiration. I don't know what it'll lead to. It might be a military takeover. You never know. South American countries are not known for their smooth government transitions. But then again, what, what is a smooth tr- transition anymore? When a government can influence a curriculum and tell teachers what they can or cannot teach, That's pretty sobering. I don't care whether you live in a developed, you know, country, uh, a true Western democracy like Canada or Israel, or whether you're in a developing country or or, or a third world country, you know, you have to look at the way the next generation is being influenced. And I have hope that there will be enough of our generation being in the middle being concerned about the way the younger generation is influenced that we'll see some progress on that front because if you're not going to do it for them who are you going to do it for right and when you start reading news that like the delta variant in brampton and across certain parts of ontario has a chance to be the biggest threat towards the 12 to 20 age group now you realize you got to start playing serious baseball serious serious competitive humanity now because that's going to affect us potentially in in the generation that's to come and what what are you doing in this world if not considering them knowing that if you don't moving forward you're just going to be perpetually hurting every country's opportunity to evolve and and israel should know better that way because they have a chance to finally do that with this strange coalition I mean, well, secular that's... secular, and ultranationalist together, man, oh, man. Those are supposed to be dire enemies, right? That's like, that's like you and I sitting at a table and uh-huh. you have, imagine you have a reform secularist uh, Muslim and across from him is someone who's a complete zealot, a complete orthodox, like a Hasidim equivalent. Uh, how do you have a conversation? First and foremost, they would despise each other. But then but they realize, want to
1: make this coalition work
0: well because they, both, be... because they both have children and that's when they'd find common ground. That's, that's, the whole, that's the only reason you hope for diplomacy in this world is that you hope the people that come to the table have children and they understand what's at stake.
1: There was a um, a sting song back oh I think 1985 um, I hope the chil- I hope the Russians love their children too. Uh, i think it was called russians by sting i don't know if you remember that
0: uh i remember that
1: you remember that song right
0: i remember that song and i remember growing up in in the last remnants of the cold war you know and seeing history unfold the way it did this is why it gets frustrating when you see the same mistakes being repeated and, and one of the world's biggest mistakes is the world being the Western world. The biggest mistake that we have in this country and in the United States and in the United Kingdom to lesser extent is our perception of Russia. Russia should be everybody's best friend. Because if you look at things historically, it's always good to have a friend like Russia rather than to be enemies with them. What has history taught us? That those divisions have created some of the most seismic events in history. And now we're still at a stage where it's 2021 and we have to wonder what the Biden agenda is with Russia when really they, they should be the closest to um, global players in the world by virtue of their shared history. Think about what they've gone through together. I mean, for crying out loud, they beat fascism. They destroyed the Nazi scourge together. How do you go? It's like, it's like you're in a band together and you're like the greatest band on the planet and then, oh yeah, I just realized I wanted to tell you the story of the Beatles, right? I mean, wasn't that what Lenin and, and McCartney was essentially? That's what Russia and the United States were for a very, very short window of time. They realized that if they got together, they could help rid the world of something that was uh, just pure evil, that needed to be dealt with, right? That needed to be held in check. And, uh, and look how that played out. Instead, they entered into a period of frosty relations with a few exceptions, you know, a couple of years during the Khrushchev era, obviously Gorbachev. But by then, the one-sided nature of that relationship forced the Russians to realize the lack of dignity they had. And when you don't have dignity in a relationship, whether it's with one person, whether it's with an organization, your country, your God, you're in trouble. You're in trouble because it's that lack of dignity that creates conflict. It's that lack of dignity that has such a a surreal uh, relationship between NATO and Russia. The fact that we still have to go to these anachronistic divisions that were born out of a post-war period, when here we are in 2021 with a lot bigger problems than being worried about whether or not Europe's going to fight with Russia, we have a real fundamental issues that can be best addressed through diplomacy. That's why I'm not holding my breath with what happens when the US president goes to visit Vladimir Putin. But the fact is we have big problems on the horizon and I would prefer to see the world exist where those two can be friends rather than create intrigue division across like all the hotspots in the world. Because I can tell you what's happening in China is a far greater existential threat than more people realize. And that's where there won't be time for having to argue and haggle between Russia and the U.S. when they realize what's at stake. A lot of threats. Wow, so you brought up uh, China and then
1: what they're doing to the Uyghur
0: population. Yeah, I mean, whether it's in witnessing how they handle their own... um, Minorities and and migrant waves to how they treat their own citizens mm-hmm. with their absolutely intrusive and appalling security methods. Um, I'm thrilled we're on this side of the fence, Kareem. I mean, I'm glad that you and I sometimes feel like we're hobbits in the Shire because we really are compared to what goes on in certain parts of the world. And the world is getting to be a more dangerous place. And and the Russians and the United, you know, the Americans, they've just become so embroiled in things that are taking them away from the real priorities out there. And, you know, you, you asked me earlier, so am I optimistic? Am I idealistic? I'm more idealistic than optimistic. I, I, I just, Mm -hmm. I, I say to myself, I'd like to see, I'd like to see us learn from these experiences and, uh, and slowly, in some respects, we are. This was a good week for for finding some, like I said, kernels of good news out there, like America and the G7 wanting to find a way to tax all corporations at least 15%. That's a positive, right? The first Muslim judge yeah. elected on the circuit down in the States, that's definitely commendable. That's an that's important aspect of how we as humans deal with this. Difficult time. You know, even the OHL had its first female goaltender. Uh, Even though you and I remember Manon Rion when she played in the NHL, the fact that we're seeing that as a form of positive news is important. Some people are cynical, They they think it's all a PR hit at this point. Just about everything is an attempt. At representing ourselves, it's no, no such thing as negative publicity anymore, and mm. and but but you still need to know what the really good things are, where the really good signs are, and that's where I'm at least idealistic that when it comes to the Middle East, this coalition. Um, this most recent round of bloodshed, we can learn from it. And rather than divide ourselves and take sides of the, you know, on on things philosophically, let's first understand the history and learn about it and call it for what it is. Speak out the truth about it, and that's what I stand for firmly, which is uh, getting down to the real truths, not the propagandized uh, bullshit. We've got to sift through sometimes.
1: Ari Shapiro, it is always pleasure to chat with you, whether it is with microphones or whether uh, we chat with each other while I'm making dinner and you're going for a a pet food run. It's always a pleasure.
0: A pet food run. That sounds like such a such an existentially pleasant <laughs> thing, you know, like, cause when you do it, you're just thinking about your dog or your cat or your three-year-old equivalent. <laughs> and that's all you can do. You know, it's always a pleasure as well. I love, I love the work you do. And I appreciate you having me on your show. We talked about so many different things. You're going to have a lot of fun editing this. I have no doubt.
1: Listen, I'm, and I'm not a professional like you. I will clip the ends, put a little tune at the beginning That's it. Uh, to get everybody, you know, nice and comfortable.
0: That's it. I, and, should take, and, I should take that philosophy for my beard, everything you just described there. <laughs> clip it a little bit, make it a little more presentable. Yeah, but I guess it's only fitting. Do. We talked about heavy stuff, and I look like a biblical heavy dude right now, so it all works you out. It looks good on you, my friend. Thanks. I appreciate that. You're too kind. It
1: looks good
0: on you. Always a pleasure doing this. Let's do it again soon. Yes, for
1: sure, man.